This podcast is brought to you by Workle, a platform helping people get happier at work. Find out more at workle.co. Work happier. I knew as a, as a small girl that if I wanted to do something, it was going to be more difficult for me as a girl. I knew that. I chose to go into the Foreign Office, which was you know, not the easiest of careers. Wherever I went, something happened. We'd go and talk to the Chinese. We'd go and talk to these Germans. Running a war is a full-time job. Uh, and then, of course, we had Watergate. Welcome to the Happy Work Life podcast, where people with inspiring careers reflect on how happy they have been in their working lives. On this podcast, we hear from a range of people working in business, startups, science, academia, media, healthcare, fashion, and much more, and find out which roles gave them the most satisfaction and, importantly, what they have done to get happier at work. So sit down with me, Mark Price, founder of Workle, to help you get happier at work. Workle is the platform where you can find a job in the happiest companies, take our happiness test, network, and get career support from experts and much, much more. I'm delighted to be joined on this edition of the Happy Work Life podcast by Baroness Pauline Neville-Jones. Pauline started her career in the Foreign Office. She worked in Rhodesia, Singapore, Washington. She was a European commissioner. Uh, She advised prime ministers on foreign and defence affairs and became Minister of State for Security and Counterterrorism. In between that, you'll be surprised to hear she also was the governor of the BBC. She chaired Kinetics when it floated on the stock market and has got a huge amount of experience, therefore, in both business. But what I'll principally be talking to her about, which is her time as a civil servant in the Foreign Office, but also working as a minister. Baroness Neville-Jones, Pauline, it's wonderful to have you on the the podcast. Uh, You've had a truly amazing career, as people will know through going through that introduction. But um, to start, I'd just like to know a little about your school days and to what extent they might have shaped you. What are your recollections of your school days? I was born, I was actually born in Birmingham. And uh, my father, who was a medic and who was in the Royal Army uh, Medical Corps, um, was one of the very rare doctors who was killed. This resulted eventually in a a second marriage. So I, I had a stepfather who was absolutely a splendid man. I couldn't have wished for a better substitute father. But what it did mean was that we moved north, uh, which was more his family's stamping ground. So I really grew up from the point of view of important, what happened at school that was important was was in Leeds, uh, where I went to the girls' high school, um, which was regarded, I suppose, as being the the best girls' grammar school in in, in the city. And it was a very traditional, grammar school education there was nothing modern about it and indeed we were taught by by a large number of women who were themselves spinsters from the from the first world war you know who'd lost their their fiancés or their husbands uh, and had continued a career so you can imagine that in fact uh, I mean I left school in the, in the late 1950s um, this was in many ways I think looking back on it it was rather a throwback to um, an earlier, earlier uh, vintage of teaching. 
interesting school. Um, the girls were taught uh, both Latin and sewing and cooking. Um, so you see the sort of mixture of, of things that we were prepared for. And a relatively small number of girls actually went on to, to university. Those were the days when it was quite hard to, to get into Oxford and Cambridge. It was always said that um, it was hard, it was hard, hard, uh, as hard for a woman to, to get in as it was for a man to get a scholarship. Um, and I was for a long time on the science side in school. Um, and interestingly, when it got to the sixth form and you know what we do is we, we drop all these subjects that other than those main subjects that you, you know, focus on. And I was doing physics, chemistry, biology and maths. And I suddenly realized that actually I missed all the other subjects. And there was something of a crisis in, in uh, you know, what was I going to do? Was this really, was this really, was, were these really the subjects that I wanted to do? And I swapped. Um, so I then had to work extremely hard to sort of make up the time that I'd lost. Um, and in many ways, that acted as a stimulus, I think, to, you know, to, to show that I could do it. Um, and I'd also, I mean, I did sufficiently well to, to then, you know, qualify to take the Oxford and Cambridge entrance exams. And thereafter, off I went to, to Oxford, which really was, I think, in many ways, the, the opening of doors to a much bigger and wider world. What did you study there, Pauline? I've read history, modern history, so-called modern history, which is actually the, the constitutional history of, of the United Kingdom. I enjoyed it a lot. It's a, I think it's a challenging and good degree, and it makes you think. And at the end of that degree, mm. had you already formed a view of what you wanted to do? Yes, up to a point. Uh, now, this is the question of what, what were the choices that were actually open to a woman? This is now... Um, I went. I went up uh, in 1958, and so in 1961 it was end of university career. And you know, if you look back on it, there was publishing. The BBC took women and made gave them a career, uh, and there was the civil service, the home civil service. I think you know uh, was beginning to offer women a real career, and there had by that stage been one, and I mean one, female permanent secretary i.e. top of the top of the department. And then there was the Foreign Office. And I was much more interested in foreign affairs. But the Foreign Office, on the other hand, um, still had a grossly discriminatory arrangements. So as a woman, if you got engaged, you were obliged to resign. You certainly couldn't stay on married. And there were whole areas of the world that were excluded, wouldn't send women to the Far East or the Middle East. But you had to look at that against the background of an awful lot of other activities that were really virtually closed to women. Uh, the law was extremely difficult for women. There were a few women solicitors. There were virtually, I think there was one recorder, one female recorder. And the bar was extremely difficult and very discriminatory. And you could you know, go right along the line. And business on the whole was really difficult for women. You know, didn't reckon to offer a career. You could go on and be a secretary which is what my aunt, who got um, very advanced qualifications in languages, but she ended up being, you know, being, being a secretary to, to uh, one of the directors. The limits were real. I chose to go into the Foreign Office, which was you know, 
not the easiest of careers. And I remember my tutor saying to me, are you sure you really want to do that? You mean, you have a much, much, much better career in the Home and Civil Service. And so tell us then about um, your early days in the Foreign Office. They put me onto the American desk, but I, d- I did that for a bit. And then I went on a treasury course, uh, which was very, very good. And then I suppose I'd been in the service about 18 months or so when they told me that I was to go to what was then called Southern Rhodesia and today is Zimbabwe. And I was extremely cross about this because I joined the Foreign Office. In those days, we had the Foreign Office and we had the Commonwealth Office or Commonwealth Relations Office. And that was a Commonwealth Relations Office post. And I regarded the Commonwealth Relations Office and I'm not alone in this as a very inferior department. Um, but what they were doing was they were beginning to mix the because they, they had intended, they intended, and they did about two years later, join the two departments together, and it became the FCO, Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Um, and they posted most of the people who joined the Foreign Office to Commonwealth, depart, Commonwealth countries, and they, vice versa, Commonwealth entrance into Foreign Office countries. Um, so I went, to, I went to Zimbabwe, and I ended up uh, getting there just before UDI happened the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, when Mr. Smith um, said, well, you know, he's, he was declaring, this is all about you know, majority rule and, and race policy, and that he was um, you know, declaring independence because he couldn't get it from the UK legally and, and uh, setting up a, a, an extremely um, discriminatory regime in the country, which was, of course, 20 to one, black to white, educational, I disapproved strongly of government policy, but it was, I learnt a lot. I was so-called third secretary in Chancery, uh, which meant I did uh, a mix of things, but I, and I did, I tried my hand in the early stages of doing political reporting, sending back to London analyses of the political situation, understanding the extraordinary uh, sort of constitutional arrangements that they were going to set up. I was able to travel the country, I mean, it'd see quite a lot of it. And then then from one hotbed, you went to another. You went on to Singapore. Went on to Singapore. Yes, Singapore had, about six months previously, broken away from the rest of Malaysia, become a, uh, a separate country. Uh, and there was a lot of tension between Singapore and Kuala Lumpur. And there were you know, threats of cutting off the water, from which came from Johor Bahru in, in southern, southern Malaya across the across the causeway um but in fact now the time i got there it was beginning to calm down they, they were they were not friends the two the two capitals and it was of course a very striking contrast to go from a place that where ten, the whole issue of being race and tension about race and so on uh to to a country which is i think more genuinely multiracial than most other societies and where you had Chinese, Indians and Malays living alongside each other. There was intermarriage, um, not an enormous amount, but certainly it existed. And of course, there were significant European contingent there. And that's still the case. One of the success stories, I think, is the way in which the the talent of of, uh, the Singapore government, which is very well run, um, has harnessed the talent of of the, its mixed race community, and you know they've that it's not been without uh, without any tension at all, but, but relatively little. 
the main problem, uh, security problem that existed when I was there was that there were a number of Chinese who were actually communists. Um, and Li Kuan Yew, who was then prime minister, was um, quite uh, quite clear about the fact that you know, they will be in detention. Um, he didn't um, mess about. Um, and he was so there were a number of Chinese who were were in what was executive detention. And how would you describe your job in Singapore? Well, I would. I did exactly the same sort of job. I didn't have the consular. I oversaw the, the consulate, um, but I didn't actually have to do do directly deal with with the consular cases myself. But I did have the consul come and talk to me about various problems that he'd got. Uh, but I was then again junior member in chancery and doing the same sort of of work. There you were, you had a normal situation. So you would get instructions come in from London about something and you'd then go and talk to whoever was the right department uh, in the Singapore government. And because it was a new country, a lot of the a lot of the civil servants were more or less my age. Uh, so I was at much less of a disadvantage than you might imagine, simply because I was often dealing with somebody who wasn't wasn't a great deal older than me, if at all. Uh, whereas my high commissioner uh, was often significantly older than the officials that he was actually dealing with. So it's a very curious situation. And I had a wonderful time. I really, I, I traveled then, and I traveled from Singapore too, to quite a lot of the countries in Southeast Asia. It was uh, air traveler really just opened up. And so I made the most of all the holidays that I that I could get. And after that time in Singapore, mm. which clearly gave you um, significant insights to the southeast, you moved to Washington. Well, I had to. I had a beer in London before that. I was on the Spanish desk, among other things, Spanish, Spain and Gibraltar, and we had a row with the Spaniards. It was the end of the Franco era, towards the end of the Franco era, and. I think for a whole series of nationalist reasons, they had begun to make trouble over the British colony in Gibraltar. Uh, their foreign minister, who was called Castiglia, uh, Castiglia had put in place a number of restrictions, which included uh, restrictions on the waters round, the waters round Gibraltar. So it was quite dangerous to to use to you know, to, to cross the waters uh, in the vicinity of Gibraltar, which were also close to to Spain. And the airspace was also very restricted. And so the pilots coming in had to maneuver extremely carefully to get into the airport on the rock. Um, and I spent quite a lot of time uh, with the Navy, British Navy in London, planning uh, the rules of engagement. That's to say the rules that the British, that British warships were followed, would follow if, we, uh, if we, if there was conflict, so I learned, I learned a bit about you know how to run a war, and in fact, in the end, the Spaniards backed off. We managed in the end to, to de-escalate them. We also had the colonels in in Greece. You know, there's a time when there were there were uh, some quite nasty governments in 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 Europe itself, and the the colonels who had ousted the royal family. Uh, they were also, and I, I dealt with Greece for a short time as well. So the European community was coming into being at that time. That's sort of later, in a sense, later part of the story. We come on to that, and um, yeah. 
So then, 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 right, then I went to Washington, yeah. I was going to say, because we, yeah. we come up to Bonn later, but before Bonn, yeah. um, you had Washington, didn't you? Yes, well, I had Washington, and Washington was lovely, because I was, I was the, uh, they invented a new job, um, and I was first secretary internal, as to say, I dealt, I dealt with American politics. And so I spent, well, a lot of my colleagues, the main port of call was the State Department, and they dealt with you know, foreign policy issues with the Americans, and there was a lot going on between the two countries, obviously. Um, I was the one who you know, went to Capitol Hill, and I, my job was to get to know the senators and the congressmen and the, and the politics. And so when the ambassador said, who should I have to dinner? Who's, who, who's, the, who's the right congressman or the senator to have to dinner on? on or whom should I go and see? And who should we be lobbying? about this subject. I was the person who should know the answer to that question. You know, who was interested in that subject? What did they know about it? What were their what were their opinions? Uh, so I used to roam the corridors of Capitol Hill, a bit like a bit like a journalist. And we had an election, uh, an election that uh, Nixon won. I mean he was already incumbent and the incumbent president won. Uh, but I was I traveled with some of the candidates and uh, and then, of course, we had Watergate. So for, I was Miss Watergate for a bit, in the sense that I, I was the person in the in the embassy following uh, you know, following what was going on Watergate and you know, the extent to which it was going to potentially oust Nixon, which of course it so, did. So do you think that trouble followed you, Pauline, or you followed trouble? <laughs> I don't know, but it's certainly true. It's certainly true that wherever I went, something happened. This is why, you know, actually, the job I did did in the Foreign Office, I mean, it was so fascinating. There was always something going on. And what are your what are your memories of Watergate? I suppose it was two things. I mean, one was obviously you know, what was its constitutional significance, and and you know, would he be impeached, and so on. And uh, but the other thing, of course, was was it it showed you the the American the American political system in in action what a system of checks and balances in, in a regime of separation of powers, what it was capable of doing. Uh, so one part of the government, in effect, one, one arm of government then starts to take action against another arm of government. To follow a bit of you know, real constitutional history uh, in being in operation, of course, was just rivetingly fascinating. And <laughs> you'd wake up in the morning to wonder, you know, what was the latest extraordinary events that the journalists had discovered overnight? And um, from there, as we mentioned mm. earlier, you went on. I went back to London, uh, where I, I, I and I asked if I could deal with European affairs because it, could, it, it, it seemed obvious by then the UK had just succeeded in joining. I was put on to dealing with the then foreign policy cooperation, which was one of the things that still took place in capitals, um, and I was preparing for the first time that the British were going to host the six months of the presidency, uh, our president's our first presidency. Um, and I was summoned to, by the head of the department who said, um, I want you to go to Brussels uh, because the British commissioner, the new appointed British commissioner uh, needs a, a deputy chef de cabinet. Um, and uh, we, we're, we, we reckon you're one of the candidates. And I thought, this can't be true. I mean, I'm, 
she's all wasting my time. They must have a real candidate in mind because you know, I'm doing this other job and surely they're not going to take me off it just as back as we're about to launch on, on, on our first round of heading up foreign policy cooperation. So I went to, I went to Brussels, rather grumpy mood. Uh, and when I was being interviewed by uh, Christopher Tugendhat, who was the appointed commissioner, I sort of realized sort of three quarters of the way through that if I wasn't serious, he was. And so when I came back, I, I, you know, I wrote to him and, and I explained what had happened. Uh, I said, I hoped I hadn't appeared offhand. I got the job. And instead of running foreign policy, I, was, I found myself in the European Commission inside you know, as, a, as a, a Eurocrat. And I spent five years there in, 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 his, uh, in his cabinet. And I, have, I am one of those people who's actually lived and breathed and worked inside the um, European institutions. Did wonders for my French because it was the days when French was French was the language. It's now English, I think, but it was French. And so, you know, you had, you, if you go to get anywhere, you had to read, speak, and, and write. And tell me, did did you enjoy that time? I found it very challenging at first, uh, and by that I meant difficult. Um, Yes, I did. I think and and invaluable in terms of understanding and experience. And it's a bit like learning to ride a bicycle. You know, once you've learned, you know how to do it, and and you know, you understand things about the operation of the European institutions. I think because it's quite hard to understand if you never actually experience them from from inside. Um, when I left, I sort of left without without sort of looking back. Uh, not a place you know where you have sort of romantic memories, uh, but in terms of things you could do, we looked after insurance. We and you know, we we established the first competence of the European Union insurance. Not entirely popular in London for doing that. Um, I was the person who wrote the brief which brought into existence the the European Council, which is the heads of government meeting, which didn't exist previously, and you learnt a lot about the member states. And, and given all of that knowledge on top of everything else you'd learnt in America and the Far East, etc., you, you then moved to uh, a period where defence and security became your main working life, I think. And obviously you were chairman of the um, UK Joint Intelligence Committee. But, but tell us about the move after Bonn and the security and defence work from uh, Brussels, I went back and I was actually head of the policy planning staff in the Foreign Office, which is you write the Foreign Secretary speeches, you you look off, you get asked to deal with policy issues that people otherwise find too difficult. You write long term policy planning papers and you sort of pick up difficult tasks. Uh, we were quite a small team. And we used to meet other other governments that had policy planners, the most important being uh, France, Germany and and the and the US. And those those were quite valuable meetings because you'd learn something uh, which uh, from a, from an angle that other parts of the system wouldn't necessarily get at about the inner thinking in other people's other people's foreign ministries. So I, I found those I found those uh, those visits, and we also you know, we'd, we'd go and talk to the Chinese, we'd go and talk to these Germans in ways that it was quite hard for other parts of the system to do it. 
I mean, you didn't get anything. East Germans didn't get any information out of them, but you've, you've certainly learned a lot about the constraints within which they were living. And I mean, the nature of a very unpleasant system. After that, then, then I went to Bonn. When I was in Bonn, I was uh, there during German unification. Um, I started out as, as um, uh, what's called economic minister. I was dealing with trade policy. Uh, and I was part of the negotiating team in Germany. And of course, the, and the negotiations took place in Germany. And this is one of those occasions when, when you know, what was going on was um, not negative and not warfare and not, not uh, some sort of awful crisis. It was actually uh, an extraordinary turn of the of you know, the wheel of events in a in a wholly favourable direction, and we we got our continent back. Up to that point in certainly my lifetime, Western Europe had consisted of France and uh, eventually Spain, but not until Franco died, and half of Germany and Italy, uh, watching that the communists didn't get into power, and, and Scandinavia, and the rest of the continent was. You know, forbidden territory. I couldn't go there as a as a foreign office employee, and indeed, you know, ordinary people weren't welcome. And so we had a tiny truncated uh, European continent. And the result of German unification was, of course, uh, the subsequent and immediate collapse of of the Warsaw Pact and indeed the Soviet Union. And that resulted in in this, the liberation of all these countries. And our ability actually to behave as Europeans together. Extraordinary. Wonderful. Can't tell you how how elated one felt about the, the this this extraordinary uh, sort of wave of freedom that uh, you know, we, suddenly we 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 were experiencing. It was a real joy, very moving moment. After that, which, as you say, must have been truly amazing, what, mm. what came next for you? Then I came back to 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 London again, and uh, and this time I was in I was in the cabinet office, and that is when I had a job which which was in, in effect the uh, part of the uh, prime minister's part of the number of advisors that the prime minister had um, for foreign affairs. And I did the coordination in the cabinet office for uh, foreign policy, external trade and and defense. And so when the prime minister had a, a cabinet committee meeting that he was chairing, and I was the one who gave him the brief. I was the one who prepared that agenda item in coordination with the other departments involved. Uh, and he would he would have the brief from me. It was also true that when the cabinet uh, discussed foreign affairs, again, the brief came from me and I, and indeed I attended cabinet, you know, for, for the foreign affairs item and took the note, which you then had to produce in very short order uh, and very crisply for a very demanding uh, cabinet secretary. So you were right at the core of the core of government. And while I was there, doing that job, uh, the job of chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee fell vacant. And 
and I was given the, the job in addition to what I was doing. And that involved chairing the weekly meeting of the intelligence agencies, which, which is uh, the security service who does domestic security, the SIS, Secret Intelligence Service, which uh, you know, deals with, with uh, intelligence abroad, and GCHQ, which is the signals agency in these days, very much the core of, of cyber. Uh, cyber security and and also uh, military intelligence, um, which is a, is a battlefield. And uh, the, uh, the heads of these agencies would meet under the chairmanship of somebody in those days from the foreign office and would prepare the weekly uh, intelligence assessment, which usually consisted of a mixture of uh, short term issues. Cyprus was very often on the agenda, um, and longer term ones, you know, what was going on in China or developments in Russia following, you know, following the breakup of the Soviet Union. And the intelligence assessment, the weekly, the weekly assessment, you know, went into, uh, went into cabinet ministers' red boxes, usually for them, for them to read on the weekend. Uh, and it, it forms part of their their understanding of what's going on in the world. And our job was to you know, to try to get our analysis of, of uh, what, what the particular subject we were dealing, what it meant and what its, what its importance was for, for British interests uh, and for British policy. Uh, and to give you know, some kind of prognosis uh, about what could possibly happen next. Um, so that people had some idea of, of you know, weren't to totally surprised, you know, if um, they, they woke up one morning and heard that something had happened. Ah, oh, they'd say, if you've done a good job, yes, well, I've, I'm not entirely surprised. So it's not always possible to do, you know, to make such a forecast. It's quite serious, difficult work, and you, 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 you're, you want to be very certain of your plans. So, um, there have been a number of since then. Uh, you know, there have been a, a number of episodes about the way in which these assessments are being written, um, and now the the way in which they're written is is much more explicit than we had sort of graded language about our level of certainty. Now now there's it's much more explicit um, when when the uh, assessment team. Uh, and the and the and the heads of the heads of the, uh, the services, you know, want to say we're not very confident about this, but this is possible. Or this looks this we're we're we're, we're well we feel well grounded on 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 this subject. So because um, it's very important that people understand what, what the level of what the level of confidence is in the assessment that you're making um, and the particular statement that you're that you're. Uh, Put it on paper. You you learn to be very very careful in your use of language. After the cabinet office, you went back to the foreign office um, as political director, I believe. That's right. Yeah. Which, Which is, is huge. Well, it's a it's a title that we've adopted from 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 actually from European services. They, they, we used to have a series of of deputy undersecretaries who dealt with you no know, dealt with region, regional parts of the world. 
and there was a, uh, one, one deputy secretary who dealt with the European Union. Um, and as our continental European counterparts, however, um, had divided their, their foreign offices traditionally into political and economic, two sort of fiefdoms. In the end, we, we, we took on the title. Uh, so I would work with my, my regional deputy undersecretaries uh, in, a, in a cooperative relationship. And there was always a bit of tension about whether, uh, no, who was really in charge of policy. Um, uh, I mean, at official level, we worked out uh, pretty well, I think. Um, so, whereas my some of my counter, my counterparts, you know, they had direct authority over over these some of these issues, where, whereas I didn't. I I had to uh, be careful about making sure that my what I said was something that my colleagues agreed with. Um, the the big event that took place while I was. Uh, um, uh, political director was the war in Bosnia, um, and that, in the end, you know, really uh, running a war is a full-time job, um, or trying to get a peace, put it that way, and trying to get negotiation. Um, so it involved, you know, negotiating with Milosevic, and um, I, I, I can't say I enjoyed it. I mean, it was very, very stressful. You were extremely concerned about the uh, safety of British soldiers, who, of course, were along with the French peacekeepers. Uh, one of the constructive things we got out of it was very close cooperation with, with France. And indeed, there was a long period, in, uh, lasting at least a couple of years, where in effect, France and Britain uh, made a single policy. Um, we didn't try to make two policies and then coordinate them. We made a single policy. And we did that by, by meeting together. So we'd go, we'd go to each other's capitals. And then that seemed to be We had got time for that. So then we would fly to each other's airports. And we'd settle down in an airport, often a military airport, be given a room and get on with it. And then eventually, right towards the end, video conferencing came in. And I think it was the first instance of video conferencing. Uh, and we used to get down to the bowels of the Ministry of Defense, you know, right under Whitehall, um, uh, where the video conferencing, and, and the French were in the, um, in the French Ministry of Defense. And the two were linked. And we would, you know, we would make policy together. And I, I'm, I'm quite clear that, if you provided you know people, um, I'm not so keen on trying to do really important things if you don't know people and you can't really see whether somebody in the room is pulling a face because they don't like it. Or, um, but if you do know people, so that you can interpret well, I think I think video conferencing is is excellent, um, and it certainly. Reduce, it reduced the stress and made policy making both more efficient and, and obviously more rapid. And I, I don't want to skip the next um, 15 years, but what I, I want to move on to your time with David Cameron and then yeah. being a minister. But I want to acknowledge that um, in these years that I'm skipping through, you were governor of the BBC, you chair of Kinetic, which yeah. you um, 
um, technology company, which you floated um, mm -hmm. uh, very successfully. Um, you work with NetWest Bank um, and advise them uh, on strategy and all sorts of things. So you had this uh, whole other career in business that was very successful. But I really want to talk about your um, your your time with with politics and foreign office. Mm -hmm. So. If we sort of skip on, um, you went to advise um, David Cameron. You were his um, national security advisor. Yeah. And then you became Minister of State for Security and Counterterrorism yeah. in the first part of that coalition government. So, so talk to us about that. Talk to us about working with the Prime Minister to advise on national security. And talk, talk to us about your time as a Minister of State, which is quite a change, isn't it? You've gone from one side of the fence advising ministers to becoming a minister and asking for advice. Right, absolutely. I do want to just tell you though something about how I how that actually happened, and because it isn't obvious, you know, that a, that a, an ex-civil servant would actually you know, take on a political role and, and a party political role at that. But it but Oliver Letwin, who was and this is and this is I'm now talking about something like 2000 and six something something of that order came to see me rang me up and i, and I knew a number of you know obviously a new number of, of politicians we can't circulate in london without not and he he came to see me uh and he sat in my in my in my little drawing room and handed me a piece of paper which, on which there was a a brief for sort of a, a paragraph uh about working on revising, refreshing uh, foreign policy, uh, foreign and defence policy for the, um, for the Tory party. And he caught me at a moment when I had just stopped, just finished doing Kinetic and I and the, uh, was no longer a governor of the BBC. And I was wondering, what, what shall I do next? And I thought, well, this would be quite interesting. Um, so I agreed to do it. Uh, I mean, you know, it's barely pays but uh, nevertheless um and we have we had a little team the, the one the one big thing that emerged from it quite a lot emerged from it but the one big thing that emerged from it which i was absolutely convinced that I, we, the uk needed and i went into doing this work with this thought in the head was the creation of the national security council which we didn't have previously and this was partly the result of my experience as a deputy under secretary giving the Prime Minister advice and seeing the way in which it could be tipped over by, by um, ministers, other ministers. Um, and in my view, the Prime Minister needed to be in a much stronger position uh, and, and be able to you know, get a proper outcome of a, of a discussion instead of the whole thing sort of going round in circles, which it tended to. Um, so, uh, this and I used my my knowledge of of uh, American policy making and American um, American institutions, which is I mean it's a, the National Security Council is an American institution, and adapted it to a parliamentary system, and decided who should be members of it. And David Cameron said, "We're going to do this." Um, and he held the first meeting of the National, British National Security Council on his first day in office. Um, 
and I I was a member of it as the as the security and counterterrorism minister. That job was in the Home Office. I was based in the Home Office. I don't think I tell in, tell tales out of school when I say that I that it's uh, not at all. Every every department in Whitehall has a has a different atmosphere, has a different uh, culture. I didn't like the Home Office culture. Very introverted, in my view. I don't know. I don't know what it's like now, but I don't suppose it's changed a lot. Introverted, uh, external world tends to be seen as the enemy. Um, very defensive. Um, I found it very strange. Didn't like it at all, to be frank. Um, and I didn't last very long. Um, and there are there are reasons behind that which I have, I haven't actually particularly divulged. That there were there were things wrong with the wrong with the way in which advice was being given and taken. So uh, I lost it about a year. I decided that I, I just couldn't cope with that, and I would be, you know, I would do more useful things <laughs> uh, at less levels of stress um, outside 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 government. So, uh, so I resigned. I do think. I do think that being a minister is, a, is, is uh, I wouldn't have missed the opportunity to do that, just as I wouldn't have missed the opportunity, for instance, of going to Dayton for the, the peace talks on, on uh, no, the, the Dayton settlement of, of the Bosnian War, which I also found pretty, pretty stressful and difficult. But the things you do, you know, which yeah, you're quite dead to have done them. Um, but I, I, I would have liked to be able to say that I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed my time in the Home Office, but it wouldn't be true. And reflecting back now, Pauline, um, you talked hmm. at the beginning about how opportunities were really limited for women. Hmm. What's your view now? Ah, oh, it's transformed. It's transformed. Um, it, well, I mean, one absolutely key event. Uh, during my lifetime was the was the passage of the of the equal pay equal opportunity and equal pay act and and making it illegal illegal to discriminate because uh, it wasn't illegal to discriminate and that came in the 70s and that was Roy Jenkins he did he did a wonderful thing for women and it forced systems to open up and it forced them actually then to start you know because they could be taken to court and that just made a huge difference. Uh, and it's on that and uh, work that people like Elspeth Howe did on Equal Opportunities Commission. And she asked me actually to head it. Um, and I thought quite hard about it. In the end, I decided not to tear myself away from, from the Foreign Office. And in fact, it was at the time when I, I went to Brussels instead. That was really pioneering work. And I don't think that Though the doors were forced open, and I think at the beginning there was quite a lot of forcing that went on, uh, eventually people just realised, you know, trying to resist allowing women up the system, into the system, first of all, then up the system, you know, it was, it was a pointless game. Now, so where do we stand? Well, into the system, it seems to me, is, is barely a problem, and it's true now, even in the, it's like the armed forces, which not, perhaps surprisingly come late, it's, it's the church is one of the last. Uh, up the system, it varies, and any woman listening to this, you know, will be aware that it's it's not equal pegging in all the places. And I think that the private sector still has some way to go. One of the things about the public sector 
which is hugely to women's advantage, is that the uh, assessment system of your, your year's work, and it is done annually, uh, is a serious exercise. And it does mean, therefore, that marking you know, can't be scanty. It can't be, oh, you know, I think we'll give him this, because you know, you've, you've got to justify it. And it also palliates a bit for women's reluctance. And it is true, women's reluctance to ask for promotion and to push, uh, which uh, doesn't do you any good in, 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 the, in the public sector, but you do need to be willing to push your own prospects and, and demonstrate what you've done, I think, when you're working in the private sector. Uh, and women are still quite reluctant to do that. They tend on the whole to say, oh, it was the team, which is actually a wonderful way of getting people motivated. But if you always say it's the team and not, well, it was actually my leadership, um, you may be doing yourself down. So, so I think there are things that women still have to learn about how to get on. But I do think that the doors are, the doors are pretty much open. And now it's, and, and you're no longer in the world of the first woman this and the first woman that. There's still areas where it's the first woman this and the first woman that, but it's actually now that there are just women at the top and it's great. And I think society benefits. And I think the, uh, the, the, the sexes aren't the same. Uh, I think we do bring different, uh, different talents and different ways of approaching things. So I think society is richer. Um, you've got many fewer frustrated women, you know. I grew up in a generation where, where a lot of my mother's generation, my mother was a doctor, and she had a way, worked, worked phenomenally hard. And she did push the system to become a consultant, medical consultant. And I knew as a, as a small girl that if I wanted to do something, it was going to be more difficult for me as a girl. I knew that. Kids pick things up very early in life, and I knew that as a little girl. I think that. There's no reason now, I think, why if a woman wants to do something, they shouldn't be able to. I, I don't think one can sort of have, hide behind the excuse, well, I'm a woman, you know, and therefore, of course, I couldn't expect to do as well as a man. I don't, I don't think that washes anymore, because in many respects, you know, until relatively recently, it was well, and she done very well as a woman, considering, um, you know, and the considering tells you everything about how it was that, you know, there were... It wasn't necessarily obvious that you could. And with that, of course, comes some of the things that hitherto men have experienced and women didn't so much, of course, with, with some of the stress and, and that goes with carrying responsibility. And in some women's cases, you know, still running the household without much help. So I think that's changing too. I think men are much better at, at doing that. You do, do you do see men with children these days. You know, when I, when I was... In my twenties and thirties, you never saw the women, never saw the husband with the children. But you do now. And and Pauline, my my final question is this: If you were advising now your eighteen-year-old self at Leeds Grammar School, what would you say? What would I say? I would say, think very hard about what it is you want to do, and 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 do want to do something, and do something that you really feel that you want to commit yourself to and if, if you still don't know and some people don't know I mean first of all if you're going if you're going uh, um, for all I think um, you can do a degree apprenticeship or but you think you need to do something after school by way of education whether it's university or whether it's you know whether it's further training and I'm not you know, stuffy about what kind of uh, qualification you think 
you want to get and whether you want to earn while you while you do it or you feel you need to earn while you do it and all of those things are goodness sake very valuable ways you know through to to uh, putting yourself on a platform where you can hope actually to, uh, to to have a reasonable standard of living and uh and women these days need to make that calculation i can't just say oh get married uh so think about your future and whatever you decide to do commit yourself to it you know, do it as well as you possibly can um and don't be frightened to change course i think that's the other thing um i changed course quite late in life uh and it's been hugely enriching and i haven't uh, i haven't regretted it so i think well <laughs> sometimes you have to give yourself a bit of slack baroness paulie neville jones thank you so much for your time on this podcast for for sharing your incredible journey uh, and i feel i should also say thank you on behalf of the uk for everything you've done for this country it's been uh, a life where you've served the nation all over the world which has been quite extraordinary but then later in politics and so much more that i know that you can't possibly talk about <laughs> so thank you very much indeed for being with us well thank you it's been enjoyable to listen to more episodes and find out how to get happy in your working life head to workall.co work happier